All right, well, let's get started. And um, so we are studying through Ezra, as you remember, right? But we came to the end of Ezra 5 where there was um, a stopping of the rebuilding of of the temple. And uh, they had ceased for about 16 years. And then the Lord sent two of his prophets to get them going again. Who are those two prophets? No, the prophets themselves. Haggai and Zechariah, right? Haggai and Zechariah. Before Christmas, we went through Haggai two weeks. It was only two chapters. And now we started last week. We're just looking at Zechariah for uh, a couple weeks. And uh, some of you I know, if you're, are, who's in Phil's small group? Okay, some of you are in Zechariah. So you're going to get from me more bigger picture. And then you guys will walk through that in more detail or are walking through it, I'm sure, chapter by chapter. But these are important when you're studying through Ezra. Ezra. These two prophets are important. They're the ones that are directly connected to it. And uh, their information that they provide is helpful. And also we see how the Lord works in revitalizing his people to get them to do what he wanted them to do. Because remember at the end of Ezra chapter 6, that we haven't really looked at yet, but when the temple's all done, at the end of chapter 6 it says they were able to complete this through that partly through the ministry of the encouraging uh, preaching and such of Haggai and Zechariah. So, and I've returned to pronounce it a Haggai. If that, uh, that's how I grew up with it. I can't change it. I tried to change. Um, and I know Gr- uh, Graham calls it Hag- Haggai, and, uh, which probably is the way it's pronounced officially um, in the Hebrew name. But I just can't do it. So we know him as Haggai. That's who we know. Yep, there you go. We, we, uh, we don't want to change that. It's too late in the game. Isaiah or whatever? Yeah. You know, I think that's the English pronunciation. Like, uh, like... Uh, England, English, English a pronunciation, because I've heard that too from some. And it makes you sound like, you know, a, a professor when you do that, you know, when you pronounce it that way, but it um, makes you sound into Habakkuk, Habakkuk, right. That's right. Malachi. <laughs> if you, I wouldn't even know what he would say. If he would have like, turn to Malachi chapter 1, I'd be like, Malachi? I'd have felt stupid, like, did I sneak into a Mormon church or something? Is there a book I wasn't familiar with? What is going on here? Malachi. Yeah, that's, uh, anyway, uh, with that, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. As always, we thank you for Jesus and his um, atoning work on our behalf and uh, bringing us into fellowship with the triune God. We thank you for the spirit we have within us who is persistently and consistently working in us and holding us and keeping us. And we're grateful for that and how he does that even in times of simple Bible study like this. 
And so we pray that that would be the case tonight, that he would show us what we need to see for our own lives and so that we can be your people in this world and live for you in such a way that you receive glory in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the, with Zechariah, and again, we're not doing an exhaustive study with Zechariah, um, but one of the things we learned is that uh, there are about eight visions, not, ex- not about, there are eight visions that Zechariah gets that are designed to encourage the people of God. Um, he began, we looked at this last week in chapter 1, with a call to return to the Lord. And once again, just like with, with Haggai, there was the call of repentance here, right? But that call with, of repentance came with the, the promise that if you turn to me, I will turn to you. And we actually looked into James and saw that this is a consistent principle of God's people to, uh, of God's word to his people. Uh, no matter what has happened or what has gone on, that, that call to turn back to the Lord now and he will turn back to you and his graciousness is always there. And he mentions, and we didn't talk too much about this and we won't park on it very long tonight, but the idea as well that these returning exiles needed to understand uh, what God had done with their forefathers in the sense of driving them out of the land and punishing them for their rejection of Him, but that they were to understand now that they weren't going to receive those punishments if God would be with them if they will turn to Him. That's important if you think about it. Um, And um, they admit that in verse 6 of chapter 1, um, where it says, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And so they're thinking, yes, they did. Remember, God had sent to them the prophets saying, Turn from your sins. This is disasters coming upon you. You had been prophesying about these disasters for a long time before he did it, centuries. And, and then even after the Assyrian invasion of the northern tribes, and they still down in Judea did not repent. And he's sending them prophets, they don't repent. So his word did overtake them. God's promises even for um, bad, should we say? Oftentimes we think about God's promises for good, but God's promises for bad, like he warned them the bad that would happen and what he would, be, he would have to do uh, came to place. But they repented and said... And I think the they, verse 6 again, I think the they is the people that were there. That's how I'm interpreting that. They repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. It was an acknowledgement of what the Lord had done, and it was right. And that's a sign of true repentance, right? Is that there's this acknowledgement that whatever has happened, that God was right in this, but then there's this turning to the Lord, and the Lord's going to bless him, okay? So we went through that, and then God promises uh, His help to them and His grace to them. And then in chapter 3, we didn't go through, like I said, we're not going through everything, but chapter 3, remember, was the vision of Joshua the high priest. And remember, that was where he was in his um, uh, dirty clothes, and 
the devil was there accusing Satan, the adversary, the accuser, was accusing God or accusing Joshua before God. And because he was a high priest and he's unfit for his service, so what does the Lord do? He provides for Joshua clean garments and promises to take away the sin of his people in one day. And we said that first and foremost points to the cross of Jesus Christ and the one-time sacrifice that he provides for his people. And it's just a beautiful picture to these people, the reminder that God's going to provide everything they need, including the righteousness. And he's no, he says in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, that, uh, uh, no, this, this is later on, or am I messed up? Anyway, the Lord is our righteousness was his name, remember? The Lord is our righteousness. And so there's that idea that the Lord is providing righteousness for us, and that is a principle, again, that comes into our day, of course. Um, and we, we, we see the Lord as our righteousness. He provides that. So he's going to provide everything he needs. Now, one more vision I want to look at this week, and that's in chapter 4. And let me just tell you where we're headed. So uh, I want to look at the chapter 4 vision, because there's one more thing they needed to know and uh, be assured of and grasp by faith as they went about this endeavor of building the temple and getting Jerusalem back up and running. There is this present help that they're getting, and that's in chapter 4, but also Zechariah is filled with promises to them of God's future restoration of Jerusalem and Israel generally, and it's filled with the promises of the Davidic king coming and the kingdom time. Remember, they're thinking kingdom. They're thinking they want back what they had. Remember, if you read through Second uh, Samuel and, and that, especially in the, the heyday of Israel, which was King David's time and reign and the glory of the kingdom there and Solomon and the, temp, the first temple being built in the kingdom. They're thinking kingdom and they want that back. They have lost it. And God's going to give them promises through Zechariah of the future kingdom and the future king to come. And, uh, but as we're reading those, what we'll see, and we'll probably dive into those a little more next time, but as we're reading those, what we're going to see is they have not been fulfilled in their fullness in the way that they're described, which means there is yet to come a fulfillment of these. And we'll see that even that land and that place is very important to God still, even as we're we're like telescoping out millennia to when it'll finally be fulfilled. So you'll have some present fulfillments like in Zechariah 9.9. That's a well-known one. We should, most of us should know that. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. We celebrate that text every Palm Sunday, right? The beginning of the Passion Week. That has happened. But then there's this telescoping out way beyond that, of this fulfillment of the kingdom purposes and the restoration of the land. And we're going to see how the nations, uh, the us, have been included into this, um, into the kingdom to come. So, but let's look at chapter 4, uh, the vision of a golden lampstand. This is more about what they needed to hear uh, for their current time. 
And um, let's, let's read this. The, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see a, and behold a lampstand, a menorah. We've all heard that word, a menorah. Okay. All of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with uh, seven lips on each of the lamps or little channels, okay, or tubes, if you will, on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And there, here he's talking specifically about the olive trees. We'll break this down in a minute. But, and I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace and grace to it. Grace, uh, grace, grace to it, the top stone of the temple. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Who was Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the civic leader, right? The descendant of David, not a king, though, because they didn't have a king. Um, and so he's the civic leader, though, descended from David. He's the one primarily responsible for the building project at this point. And he has a, the, the Lord has a message for him that appears in verse 6. Not by might, Zerubbabel, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Okay, that's how you're going to build this temple. Any opposition, whatever mountain is standing your way, you think about a mountain, if you wanted to do something and a mountain is in the way of that, the Lord is promising, I would take that mountain and make it a plain. You're going to accomplish this. And there's nothing that can stop it. And then he says, And you, Zerubbabel, or he, shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace and grace to it. Imagine put, taking the top, the last stone on the temple, putting it in, and everybody's shouting, grace, grace to it. And you're going to accomplish this, in other words. And he gave a picture, though, before that, Okay. And so you have this lampstand, so picture a menorah, a lampstand with seven actual lamps on it, okay? And in the center of that, you've got a bowl, a great big bowl, presumably to hold the oil for the lamps. And that's why it says it has seven lips on each of those or really little channels. So out of that bowl that's filled with this oil is channeling this oil to keep the lamps burning, they had these kind of a menorah, nothing described like this with the bowl in the middle and such, but the menorah was in, they had one in the, um, the, the tabernacle. And then I think in Solomon's temple, I had like 10 of these in there. And it's keeping that light, there. they were supposed to keep the light burning at all times and different things. But then this particular lampstand has two olive trees attached to it. So it'd be kind of a funny looking picture, right? You've got two olive trees, one on each side, and what they would do is they would use olive oil in those times to light their lamps. 
So from these two trees then is funneling into that bowl, essentially, all the oil they would ever need. It's going to keep it funneling in. The oil is going to keep going out into these lamps and keeping these lamps burning. And, you're, and, and uh, Zechariah is like, what in the world does that mean? And the angel says, this is what it means. Zerubbabel and the rest who are working on this project are going to be like those lampstands that the Lord provides the Spirit's power continually now to accomplish what He's called them to do. So that in the end, everybody would know that they did this not by Zerubbabel's smarts or power or strength, not by any of the others. Nobody gets credit in this except for the Lord that's providing them the strength by His Spirit to do what they are called to do. And the Lord would get rid of any obstacles in their way. And uh, this, of course, is this not... For one, they would have, it would have been good for them to know that, right? The, the Lord is going to supply you with what you need to do what He's called you to do. And it's going to be a spiritual work. They would be working physically on that temple but the Spirit would be supplying them with what they need in order to accomplish it. And that would have been encouraging them to continue in the work. Um, but if you think about it, that, that directly relates to our time, doesn't it? I mean, whatever God calls us to do, the promise is that He will supply the spiritual strength and the resources in which to do it as we're serving the Lord. Even as we connect this to what we've been studying on Sunday mornings, you know, Jesus building His church. And all of us have role in that, right? Throughout the years of our lives. And we're serving. And where is that strength coming from? The Holy Spirit, right? It's a spiritual work, even in the physical activities. Even in things that were like, for them, you know, laying stone upon stone and building the temple and doing all of the practical things, they were to be conscious of this being a spiritual work and the Spirit of God helping them do it, okay? And it's the same now. You know, Peter says in 1 Peter, or uh, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, whoever serves, and that's a pretty broad statement, whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified. So we are, we are to know that when we have something to do, whatever it is, whatever it is, this consciousness that we need the Lord to strengthen us, give us wisdom, encourage us, help us, and then we go about what the Lord has called us to do, and His Spirit supplies us the strength, the wisdom, the gifting, whatever it is. And I think that the more we step out into ministry by faith now, even into things that make us naturally uncomfortable, God does have a way of putting people in positions that by nature they might not have chosen this position or this particular task. 
But he does that on purpose so that in the end, when you do what he's called you to do or whatever providentially he's laid in your path, it's, you recognize it wasn't me. It is the Lord who has provided me with the strength to do this. Um, so, uh, any, any thoughts on that? Any questions about that, that vision? Okay. All right, let's start talking now about the promises here and the prophecies that we'll see throughout Ezra. And I've got about four or five of them. Like I said, I can get to maybe one tonight and we'll get to the rest next time. But these are promises now, after we've gotten the initial part out of the way of repentance, of forgiveness, of God's righteousness, His presence with them, His supplying power of grace. And now there's motivation coming throughout Zechariah that God is doing big things in what they're doing. That God Himself has a big plan um, for that people and that place. And keep in mind, and this is important, when you're thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah, for that matter, when you're thinking about this time period, God is preparing, remember, the people and the place for the coming of the Messiah. This is what it's all about. And so he's assuring them of the fact that he's going to fulfill those kingly promises of a kingdom, and he's going to make things the way he's promised. He's going to restore this kingdom, and you will see throughout it, it centers, we'll, begin, we'll see that right away from chapter 2 and so forth. It centers in and around this place of Jerusalem, and in chapter 2 we'll see it's the first time, actually the only time, it's called the Holy uh, Land. The Holy Ground, literally, Adama is the Hebrew word. Uh, and Adam was called Adam because he was from the ground, Adama. And this is the holy ground. That God, nothing unique about Jerusalem or that land, nothing extraordinary about it. Lots of beautiful places around the world, you know, that you could say this is a great place. But it is God who has declared this place a special and unique place. And he has um, promises for its future as well. All right. Um, Let's spend, let's, hmm, let me think here. Let me, let me give you a picture, a, a picture of the Bible that I think would be helpful at this point, and I want to lead into um, the kingdom time that I think mainly Zechariah is referring to, okay? One of the major themes of the Bible, if not the major theme, is that of kingdom, God's kingdom, Okay? It's one of the major themes of the entire Bible from beginning to end. We think about God's kingdom. We think about his rule and reign over this creation. Okay? And if we go back all the way back to the beginning and God made Adam and Eve, what did God give to them? Now, he made them in his image, but he gave them something important. As a matter of fact, you can look at it in the first chapter of the Bible. He blessed them. He 
He gave them in verse 28 a key word there. Think about kingdom and what word in verse 28 did he give to Adam and Eve? What is it? Dominion, right? Dominion is a kingdom word. Uh, When you think about dominion, you're thinking about ruling. You're thinking about reigning over something. God gave to Adam and Eve uh, the rule and reign over creation. Everything else that was made was put under Adam and Eve's dominion. And they were to have dominion over, and then he names them, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that God created. You're ruling over it. Now, what's interesting about that is that who really has dominion over everything? God does, right? So God has dominion over everything, but he commits to Adam and Eve this rule over the creation he made under God's rule. So clearly, God's initial plan in humanity included this special, unique creation of human beings in his image, exercising his dominion over creation. That's his plan. Uh, That's his purpose for human beings, and it's the major aspect of their being made in his image. Image bearers as ones who are to have dominion and rule and reign over it. But of course, then something very tragic happens, right? The devil comes in, God's kingliness is questioned, uh, God's goodness is questioned, they rebel against God. Now we have the fall, Genesis 3, flashing forward here, he makes a promise that one is coming and he's going to reverse all this. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to reverse all this. You move forward in um, the, the storyline a little bit, you get to Noah and after God destroys the earth and spares Noah, this kind of creation mandate is renewed now with Noah and um, is kept intact with mankind still, even though fallen now before God's rule and reign is to have dominion. And uh, he gives that to them over God's creation. But then you get into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you have the beginning of this, what we call a nation of Israel. And it isn't very long until this nation is given a king themselves. Saul was the first one, of course, and he was... uh, he failed, but then we bring in King David. And from then on, God is promising to send a king through the line of David, so a literal Israelite Jew, and he was going to have a kingdom that expanded over the whole world. And already we can see then that God's plan to have humanity be his, what some would call vice regents, that to be the, the, the means through which he exercises his rule over creation has not changed. And you're going to see this even in places like Zechariah, this promise of a future kingdom. And if you look as, as an example in Daniel chapter 7, um, Ezekiel, Daniel. Where am I going here? Daniel chapter 7. I got a new Bible, and the pages are all stuck together. 
So it's going to take about two years for me to get to where I can open up all of the pages. Uh, that say? Yes, okay. Daniel 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Here again, and this is during, you know, where's Daniel at this time? Daniel's in the uh, captivity in Babylon as he's writing this. Here's this vision of the Son of Man coming with a, with a kingdom uh, to reign over all the other uh, kingdoms. And then in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, and this is important, to the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and dominion shall serve with him, serve and obey him. So in other words, now all of a sudden, and this will become apparent in a minute if you haven't studied much of this before, but now you have this one like the Son of Man coming and he's going to be given a kingdom over all peoples and, and languages and nations and such and his saints are going to be ruling with him. They are given this dominion again. So once again, we're seeing these promises that what God began, He's going to come back to. This whole aspect of kingdom, namely, people ruling and reigning as God's representatives made in His image over the creation He has made. See, a lot, one of the ways you can see the Bible is that begins in Genesis Everything gets messed up through sin, but God makes a promise, brings a Savior, and the Savior isn't just saving people from sin and saving individuals. The plan is a new to restore all of creation and to get things as they were supposed to be before sin ruined it. The removal of sin will then bring in everything that is the way it's supposed to be. You see this theme? All right, now, if we flash forward way, 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 we get Jesus coming in, of course, and he begins proclaiming the gospel of the what? The kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of these promises of a kingdom now, everything that we'll look at in Zechariah even, beginning uh, next time, these promises of a kingdom it's at hand now. It's near. So repent. Prepare for the kingdom type of thing. And of course, Jesus is, and we know that he is that promised king. And, and, uh, and then there's this proclamation period of the kingdom, even that we're in now. You know, what Paul, Paul, or, uh, yeah, Paul says in Galatians, uh, Colossians chapter 1 that uh, we are, when we have been saved okay, when we become Christians, that we're actually transferred to the kingdom. He says in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So immediately, even Christian people now are supposed to be thinking like the Jews did, of kingdom. 
kingdom of his son. We're kingdom-minded people recognizing that in its fullest expression, the kingdom is not here yet. The kingdom is within us. I will agree with that. We have the spirit within us, the spirit of the kingdom. So we live out the principles and the power of the kingdom. We're gathering the citizens of this kingdom. But the ultimate fulfillment and expression of the kingdom is still awaiting the future time. Okay, But you are to see yourself as a citizen in the kingdom of his son. Okay? That becomes very important. <laughs> We're thinking about that. This is why Jesus will say things like, don't lay up your treasures in heaven or on earth, lay them up in heaven. There's this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom coming. Uh, for, uh, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. We're preparing for that time when God is going to restore this. Now, for the purposes, and this is where I'm going to kind of wrap it up for us this time. There are two aspects to this future kingdom. Remember, the kingdom is not here in its fullest expression yet. And we'll see that next time again. All these promises of Zechariah saying there are things that must happen. They have not been fulfilled. We do want to take the scriptures and the prophecies as literally as we can. Obviously, prophecy comes with all sorts of imagery and different things we you know, whatever. But we want to, when it says things like, well, it said, behold, your king is coming to you, Zechariah 9.9, humble and riding on a donkey. How did Jesus come to them? Literally in that way, right? So we don't want to, we don't want to spiritualize these things. I believe that there is a kingdom coming and uh, we're all going to be a part of it. But there are two phases to this kingdom, okay? I believe that we in a two-phase future kingdom, and this is important because this is Zechariah, I think is talking mainly about the first phase, okay? There is, first of all, what we call, oh boy, can I even spell it on the spot, the millennial kingdom. And I don't know the background of all of you here. There are different views of the millennium. Some say they're all millennialists, which means there's no future millennium, we're in it now, this kingdom reign or whatever. And, and then there's others that are post-millennialists. But we here at Calvary are pre-millennialists, which means we believe that the king is coming again and he is going to arrive before, put a little arrow there, the, the, and establish his reign. So we are pre, well, let me get up here, pre-millennial. That's what, what it means. I'm going to show you this in the Bible in just a minute. Okay, this is the time period that I think Zechariah is talking about in many of his prophecies. This time of a Davidic king in which he with his saints will fulfill the role of Adam, what Adam should have done but failed, and that is have dominion over the nations. I think the difference in this premillennial between what we would call the eternal kingdom, um, or whatever you want to call it, the eternal kingdom that happens after this. The kingdom doesn't end, that's clear. Kingdom goes on forever and ever. But there are differences in the millennial kingdom uh, and the eternal kingdom. And what we're going to see in Zechariah is that um, much of those differences are things like this. There are sinners still here. Things are wonderful 
but not perfectly glorious. I think there is a regeneration uh, of this time of even the creation when it's better. People, if uh, Isaiah talks about this time, that is if somebody died at a thousand years old, you'd, it'd be like an infant dying. Okay? But there's going to be unbelievers in this kingdom. There's going to be natural people who have not been glorified. And then there's going to be all of us who are glorified in this reigning with Christ over that time. And again, there's, there's a lot of verses that you got to pull together to bring this in. But this is the period of time. Oh, and the big one is this. This is the time, I believe, when the prophecies concerning Israel and their land and God's returning of them and restoring them as His people uh, and the nations coming into them. We're going to see that in Zechariah. We're supposed to go celebrate the Feast of Booze every year. And if we don't, the Lord Himself is going to send a plague on our land and all those kinds of things, whatever that's going to look like and however it is, that's in this period. And then beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. We know new heaven, new earth. We know all sin, all death, destroyed, removed. We know glory throughout it. We know Christ is reigning. We know all of those kinds of things. But, uh, but 100% what it's going to look like is left for a surprise. Because again, remember, God loves surprises. That's why we have mysteries appearing even in the New Testament that He hid from people, right? And we have no idea the amount of glory and wonderfulness of that new creation period. But this millennial kingdom, I think, is important because this is the time where God is going to, um, through Jesus and through his saints, establish an earth the way it's supposed to be with nations living, being forced under the, the rod of iron of Christ to live in righteousness and to do what is right. Okay. Now, let me show you this real quick. If you look at Revelation chapter 19... And that where we get that millennial kingdom, and I'm just, again, the reason we're doing this is because next time when we look at some of the prophecies of Zechariah, I like to get my bearings about when these things are going to be fulfilled, and I personally believe they're going to be fulfilled in that millennial kingdom. Now, if you just let your you know, eyes peruse the page here, it, chapters 6 through 19 is all about the day of the Lord's wrath. This is the great tribulation, I think, that Jesus was referring to. This is the time when God's wrath is going to be outpoured on this world in an unprecedented fashion. Depending on where you land, I, I personally still hold to the fact that I think the church will be taken out before that. Okay, Pre-tribulational rapture. However, good people disagree on that. And um, I've told you this before, I think, but my church that I grew up in was post-tribulational rapture. They're kind of party poopers and think you got to go through it, whatever it is. But no matter what, okay, that's the time of this great tribulation. I think this is the time of the Antichrist that will be there. Um, the, uh, the agreement made with the Jewish people over the first three, half of that seven-year period, and then that gets broken, and then, and then just really uh bad things happening with the Jewish people but God is working among them and he's fulfilling his Romans 11 promises to restore this geopolitical ethnic Israelites and anyway but then you have Christ returning in chapter 19 um there's this great battle that's um emerging but the rider on the white horse beginning in verse 11 and running down comes in this is Christ 
He destroys his enemies. And this is where he comes to establish his kingdom. Okay? This is his actual coming to earth. If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, it's not really a coming to earth. He's in the air. We go up, we meet him in the air, and then we go off to be with him for that time period. Okay? But this is where he's actually going to come to earth and he establishes his millennial kingdom. And listen to this in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. There's our first key of why we call it a millennium. How long is a millennium? A thousand years, right? So he throws him uh, into the pit for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This is already going to bring relief to the nations in many ways because much of our problems in this world are due to satanic and demonic influence. Okay, this is why we see what we see in Boulder with 8 to 10 late-term abortions every day. It's, there's no other explanation to that other than dark spiritual forces guiding people into doing this, okay? Things like that. So we remove Satan, and, um, so he, and he won't, uh, until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. Why? Because God said so, and that's the plan, okay? And we, don't worry, it doesn't last long. Then I saw, verse 4, thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for, again, here we go again, a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him again for a thousand years. Okay, so repeatedly a thousand years. This is why we... we tend to take that very literally. There are others that say, I don't think it's literally a thousand years. I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, but he repeats it like six or seven times in the passage, which makes me inclined to believe that it's not a figure of speech or some other thing. It's a thousand years. But notice again what's happening. Christ is reigning. His saints are reigning with him over the nations, Okay. It is in this time period, in that millennial time period, I think Zechariah is prophesying about. This will be the time of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And as we'll see, all of the nations uh, of Christ, of believers now. That's why I said we've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1, you can see yourself right there. Reigning with Christ, having dominion, everything coming full circle. That happens for a thousand years. Satan's released. They all gather like this is going to be some kind of war. And Jesus just vanquishes them and then turns, 1 Corinthians 15 says, turns the kingdom over to the Father. And then we have 
this time period. But I think it's so important to understand the time period you're talking about when you're studying through Zechariah. You're in this time period mainly. You're talking about this when God's going to fulfill all of these promises and His purposes for having human beings reign over His creation and righteousness and obedience to Him. That's what's going to be happening over that time. And like I said, next time we'll look into some of the details of that because it sounds really good. It sounds wonderful. Can you imagine living in this world now as a glorified person? Because you will be. You'll, you'll be in the first resurrection. Uh, and you think about that. You're perfected, so you don't have to worry about in you sin and failure or fallenness or corruptibility or any of those things. And in a world that is so perfectly, beautifully run that the nations don't need armies. They'll, they're going to take their spears and, and make them into pruning hooks. They're going to be gardeners. They don't need to, to defend themselves. And it's so, all is righteousness. Everything that the Lord says is right, that's what they do. And anyone who doesn't, and any of the nations who don't cooperate, the Lord himself takes care of that. Can you imagine such a world in which things are, are the way they're supposed to be? That's what we're looking forward to. And then while we're in that, we're thinking, it only gets better from here. Because after this, we go into the eternal glory. We have this new glory of a new creation awaiting us. And, and we get to live as people. And it's a key thing in this too, friends, that we get to live as human beings. You know, I think it was Randy Elkhorn in his book on heaven uh, said something to the effect of, we've become, Christians have become Platonists. And what he meant by that is like Plato taught that, you know, the body's bad and the spirit's good and our whole desire is to escape humanity, essentially, or physicalness or whatever, and become spiritual beings. But really, we are human beings. And God's plan for us is not to be floating around somewhere in space or in this place out there called heaven, but to live on an earth, on a beautiful creation that He made and to enjoy Him and the creation and one another forever and ever. This is the promise that's put forward to us in the gospel. And so, anyway, next time we can talk more about the actual encouragement these promises were meant to give to Israel and their special place within this millennial kingdom. Any questions or comments or thoughts? Yeah, Greg. Okay. No, I'm sorry, the millennial kingdom mainly. Okay. Mainly. There may be other places where... Yeah. Yeah, this, the tribulations behind us in that... Right, right. Yeah, I think the next phase for... Major phase for the plan of the world would be the tribulation period, okay? And assuming that's seven years, a literal seven years, okay... But this is after that. Christ comes, that's done. He establishes this thousand years. And sometimes when, when scriptures might talk about the age to come, this is, one of the age, this is the first step of that. The first step in God's kingdom program is that millennial period, which will be awesome, but not 100% perfect yet. And Yeah, and the best way to look, if you just take, if we take a futuristic view of Revelation, it's chronological. So you have this outpouring of God's wrath beginning in verse 6, going through chapter 19, 
Christ returns right here at the end of chapter 19, and then he establishes the chapter 20 millennial reign, and then by 21 you're getting into the new heaven and the new earth. It's chronological, I believe. In the temp- this one or in like the temple and stuff? Okay, so we are the lamps, or they are the lamps, right? And they're burning, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and the power resources to do that is being supplied by, um, by the Lord Himself, by the Spirit. Yeah. That I would say so. I think that was the picture that he's given. The oil is the, you know, the, the power, the resources of that, the Spirit himself coming from those two trees into that bowl, fueling those lamps. They keep burning. They're accomplishing it. Yes, right, yes. And the whole point being him telling Zerubbabel, you're going to do this, but it's not by your own power, strength, or might. I'm supplying you, just like those lamps are being supplied by the oil outside themselves, I'm going to do that, and it's going to be a continual supply. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's pray, and next time we'll jump back in. Father, thank you for revealing your plan to us. Um, we admit that it is a big plan, and there's a lot of... Um, moving parts and pieces. But Lord, help us to see the glory of the kingdom to come. Help us to live for it, pray for it, and to live as though these things are real and, and that our life here is temporary. And help us to keep following Christ, hold us fast until we get to be there in glory with Him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.